health information from experts, supported by research. From University of Utah Health, this is thescoperadio.com. There's a movement in healthcare toward age-friendly health systems. Even though approximately 3,000 hospitals and practices in the United States are age-friendly, you might not ever heard of this concept, which can provide older adults with better health care. Dr. Timothy Farrell is Associate Chief for Age-Friendly Care at the Division of Geriatrics, Spencer Fox Eccles School of Medicine at the University of Utah. And Dr. Farrell, let's just get right to it here. First of all, what problem does an age-friendly health care system solve? The main problem that we've been hearing from our patients, from other healthcare professionals, geriatricians, uh, you name it, has really been um, lack of consistency in providing a reliable set of evidence-based care that we know works for older people. So if you go to hospital A, they may have some of these elements, but not all. And hospital B will have still others. But there's not really a uniform set of um, standards, if you will, to provide age-friendly care. But that, thankfully, is changing. Okay. I I guess I'm a little confused. I thought if I needed to go see my doctor for a condition or for something, I went and saw my doctor, and then they just took care of me. But you're saying there's, like, behind the scenes, there should be some guiding principles to help make sure that the care is, what, consistent, higher quality? What are we trying to accomplish? That's that's correct. So much of the care that's offered uh, in the United States and elsewhere, for that matter, is really focused on addressing a series of diseases, uh, chronic illnesses uh, that sort of um, accumulate. And that's all well and good. However, when the focus is simply on um, providing the best care for each individual chronic condition, it may overlook what matters to the patient. And so the patient ends up getting unneeded care, unwanted care, or care that may frankly harm the management of their other chronic conditions. So part of this is care coordination, but it really does start with understanding what matters most to the patient. Yeah, which is a little bit of a paradigm change in healthcare in general. I think it used to be, like you said, it was treat the disease. So a patient comes in with a condition, you treat that, not really asking the patient, well, what's important to you? You know, does this treatment for this disease worth the side effects that are going to impact you? Is, is that kind of what we're talking about? It's thinking more of a person than a disease? That's absolutely correct. Now, we don't forget about the chronic diseases. We are all trained to uh, address those, and we do. Um, however, when you're dealing with multiple conditions, most common chronic condition for older people is simply having multiple chronic conditions. The management of one may involve trade-offs. Um, when you're kind of balancing against the management of another condition, especially in the context of the patient's life goals. So it's absolutely necessary to manage the chronic disease. I want to make sure I'm clear about that. But not considering what matters most to the patient means you're sort of manage these conditions in a bit of a vacuum without really a clear guidepost for where you're kind of going with this management. And for many older adults, especially those that are becoming older adults right now, they've they've had a doctor relationship where it's the doctor really guides everything and there's not a lot of participation. It's like, all right, what you say, doc, that's what we'll do. But this type of care is really going more towards kind of a team approach to taking care of the patient to make sure the patient's voice is included. Is that accurate? That's absolutely correct. And I think one way to think about this is the patient is the expert in what they want. 
and the healthcare professionals are the experts in how to get them there. Ah, yes. So instead of telling what to do, the, there should be communication, which can be a, a bit of a paradigm change for many older adults. Correct. You know, when I was in medical school, I was taught to elicit the chief complaint. I still absolutely do that. But um, increasingly, I am also asking patients, you know, really what matters most to them? Is it getting to their granddaughter's wedding in six months? Is it being as healthy as possible and living as long as possible? Is it maximizing quality of life or some combination of those things? And so that really is a paradigm shift. It's a very subtle but important shift that actually also makes healthcare much more satisfying uh, for those providing it. And I would venture to say for the recipients of the care. Let's dive into this notion of the 4M framework that helps make sure that older adults are getting the care that they should be. And then we'll discuss why some, well, first of all, why should somebody like a patient or somebody who you know knows an older adult or isn't an older adult even care about these 4M? Shouldn't they just assume this is going on in the background? Right. And it, very, it may very well be. Uh, one thing we found in our sort of uh, anecdotal observations is that very often this care is happening or is happening maybe partly and people may not realize it, but sometimes it doesn't happen as well as it could if it's not sort of called out and more intentional. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, really the key aspects of these four M's begin with what matters most to the patient. I consider that to be the North Star. Um, and there are three other aspects, medications, mentation, and mobility. And I think one reason that patients should care about these four M's, or maybe the most important reason, is that, you know, it really can be quite overwhelming to go into a doctor's office with 10 chronic conditions and, you know, 10 or more medications sometimes. And if, if nothing else, this framework really helps to boil down to really what's most critical, because you may only have 15 or 20 minutes and you really don't want to spend time on things that aren't really a priority. Yeah, so this could be a guiding framework for a conversation. And as was said earlier, if some of these things are missing, then perhaps the patient can make sure that they're calling that out, that let's have a discussion about one of these M's that might be missing. That's correct. What matters is number one. Um, what else is on, on the list? And let's go through what they mean. So you have medication was number two. Yes, medications. And that's really um, understanding the medication list and making sure that the medications are not causing side effects like you know, drowsiness or confusion that may be interfering with a patient's ability to do what matters and or could be causing harmful side effects. Right, or e even leading to false diagnosis of other conditions, especially like when you talk about confusion and mental things. Um, you know, assumptions could be made it's something else. It's something you know, worse, but it could just be medications. That's right. It's not uncommon for a very well-intentioned uh, healthcare team to uh, treat a medication side effect as if it were a medical problem. And now what you have are layers of additional medications that are all interacting with each other, sort of making the problem worse instead of better. And then the next one's mentation. What is that? Yeah, mentation really refers to cognition or mind. And that has to do with things like dementia, delirium, and depression which are so common among the older adults that we serve. And is it common, underdiagnosed, undiagnosed a lot of times? Why is this yeah. an important thing to consider for an older adult patient? Sure. Um, you know, it's easy to be fooled uh, as a clinician. Even patients with fairly significant cognitive impairment, uh, even mild dementia, 
may carry along a very nice conversation and you may not have really any suspicion that something is amiss. There'd be more, maybe more subtle clues. Um, so one of the things that we do, we're trying to advocate for is really more uh, general screening with things like the mini cog, which is a really quick and easy, you know, two minute screening in primary care. So as a patient or uh, somebody who has a older adult in their life, this mentation point really is about making sure that you are screening for those things. That's correct. And there's, there's other implications as well. Uh, one would be um, thinking about um, advanced care planning and making your preferences known uh, as early as possible, because that becomes a very difficult uh, situation if you have someone who has more advanced cognitive impairment and we don't know what their preferences are for their care. And then the fourth M is mobility. Talk about that. This is really the ability to move about safely every day to do what matters. And, you know, all of these M's, including mobility, have a very solid evidence base. So we know, you know, studies of deconditioning in hospitals when people are in bed, uh, they can be bed, you know, 75 to 80% of the time in the hospital. And when you do MRIs of their cross-section of their of their uh, legs and arms, you find that there's significant atrophy. That's not the only place deconditioning occurs, but it's a great example of, of this. And, you know, there are efforts now to really sort of rethink the way we care for people in hospitals to make sure that they are, you know, mobilizing as soon as they can so that their recovery goes as well as it can and they don't hit the next setting of care being uh, excessively deconditioned. And I would imagine mobility also applies to if I have an older adult in my life to, to make sure that they are mobile, they are able to move around, that they, they are actually not, not only are able to do it, but they do it just because, I mean, it can impact not only your physical health, but your mental health, can it? Sure thing. Uh, we, you know, there's great literature now emerging about social isolation, very, you know, very important in terms of the health effects, adverse effects of being isolated if you're not getting out. Also, it may seem counterintuitive, but if you're not active and mobile, your fall risk will increase. So you really have to be mobile in order to uh, reduce the, the risk of falls. And um, from personal experience, I can speak from uh, older adults in my life. When that loss of mobility happens, even something as simple as going to the grocery store and being able to shop for yourself, that really can impact somebody's self-image or, I mean, you know, it's just, it's such a silly thing we don't think about, but I've, you know, seen it happen. Is that something you've seen happen as well? Oh, yes. Uh, all the time. You know, there's this concept in geriatrics and gerontology about life space. And so as one's ability to ambulate or drive uh, sort of decreases, then sort of there's this shrinking uh, concentric circles of where they can actually go so that, you know, some, at one point, you know, they go to the grocery store, but then maybe they can't go to the grocery store. So they're limited to their neighborhood, then they're limited to their house and sort of it's shrinking. So the idea here is let's do what we can to um, slow down that process. And let's also make age-friendly neighborhoods and communities so that it's easier for older people to maintain their activity in sort of an age-friendly space. I think with the mobility, what I wasn't saying very well is that uh, I've witnessed the lack of mobility translate into a feeling of a lack of independence, which can impact older Americans pretty significantly, I feel. Yes, and this is how the M's will interact. So you have somebody with poor mobility, 
it's important to think about the mentation M and to screen for depression, for example. Yeah. And that's a great point that you brought up about the M's interacting. These four M's don't live alone. They all completely interact. Explain that a little bit more. Maybe an example uh, could help us understand how they interact a little bit better. That's correct. Um, Let me give you a great example um, that I'm aware of. So when when we're contacting uh, older patients to schedule appointments, um, uh, something as simple as that, right? Um, you might not think that the uh, the staff scheduling appointments needs to know about the four M's, but they actually do. So the example here is if we're scheduling appointments for older people and calling them, and we hang up on the second ring, um, that overlooks that an older person may need to have several rings of the phone before they can get to the phone because they may have impaired mobility. Another example of the M's interacting would be when our clinical pharmacist does a medication review. Um, The reason why she's an outstanding geriatric pharmacist is she also considers, you know, what matters most in terms of why people are taking medications and how are the other M's interacting. So it really has to be a bundle uh, for it to be most effective. And you've spoken about how the four M's are evidence-based. Is that insofar as you have learned through research that if providers and patients concentrate on these four M's, generally their health will be better? Correct. So um, this goes back to decades of research in geriatrics. So, for example, we know that... um, if you have someone who's hospitalized, who's an older person, they are at high risk for delirium. We have evidence-based protocols to reduce the risk of delirium substantially. Um, there are evidence-based um, uh, guidelines for what's called de-prescribing medications. And these are great evidence-based activities. The problem is there's just has not until now been a very nice, straightforward way to to bring all this great evidence to bear in a consistent, reliable manner. I guess what my question comes down to is like, why these four things? Why not something else? Why were these the four? I mean, coming up with a list of anything can be tough, right? I think this is what sort of fell out when, when there was an expert group that looked at about 20 or 30 or so evidence-based care models. They went through a sort of exhaustive um, uh, session to sort of see what were the common features among all of these evidence-based models. And this is sort of what fell out. Now, very well could be more M's. So some people would say, well, there's actually five M's. There should be a fifth M of multi-complexity. And some of my dentistry colleagues have said mouth should be another M. <laughs> uh, some have said nutrition, malnutrition should be an M. And really, uh, when I've talked to the uh, leaders of the 4Ms um, movement, if you will, what they say is, add on as many other M's as you want, but do the first four. Those are the most critical. I've heard it said that um, patients should go so far if they don't feel as though they're getting these four M's where they go, that they should demand them. That seems kind of strong. Is that? Do you agree with that? You know, it is a bit strong, but I do agree. Uh, I really feel that... Um, the way that we're going to get increasing penetration of age-friendly care in the United States and also internationally is for patients to really demand this from the grassroots. Um, it may be a somewhat uncomfortable, but it actually uh, sometimes some of the best uh, 
changes we've had in healthcare have come from listening to what our patients are telling us and not just being top down. It really needs to come from both the clinicians and from the patients themselves. That's right. So um, by asking for the four M's, you're not only advocating for yourself, but we're at a point in the movement where you're advocating for patients that will come in after you. That's correct. This is a bit of a ripple effect that we're seeing. And, you know, it's been great progress. There's about 3,000 hospitals and clinics in the country who have the basic uh, level one participant designation. At University of Utah Health, we have level two committed to care excellence designation, but that still is sort of a floor, not a ceiling. So we really are looking to the next phase for our patients to help us design the health system that they want as they age. As we wrap this up, uh, you've done a wonderful job, I think, of explaining the four M's, why they matter to a patient, um, why you should ask for them, maybe even demand them. Um, is there any additional ways that patients could use the information they obtain today to improve the health care that they're receiving? So I think one of the things that we're learning from our patients and their caregivers is the importance of caregiving. And that really gets back to the what matters and mentation M's in particular. So we have some innovative projects going on where we're sort of working on caregiver proxy access through MyChart and other ways to make sure that um, we're communicating optimally with pay, the sort of the dyad or the triad, the number of people that are supporting the patient. And so this is back to an earlier comment you made about teams. Really, it's not just a healthcare team. It's the team that involves the patient and the caregiver as well. And when it functions well, it's a really wonderful thing that makes sure that you're, you're getting at that North Star of what matters most. Have a question about a medical procedure? Want to learn more about a health condition? With over 2,000 interviews with our physicians and specialists, there's a pretty good chance you'll find what you want to know. Check it out at thescoperadio.com.